Father, prepare us tonight to hear your word. Open our hearts. Holy Spirit, help us to listen. Help us to tune out the things of this week, the things of this day, the experiences of life. God, to hear you, to hear your voice speak to us. God, we know you're for us. God, that you love us, that you want to teach us, that you want to help us, Lord. God, we're here because we want to hear you and we want that help. God, speak to us tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. How's everybody doing? Good? Anybody go over to the uh, park for the barbecue? How was it, James? Not bad. Not bad? Not too bad at all. Good, good. Glad we were represented over there. (laughs) I was kind of finishing up getting, getting ready. Tonight, so I was unable to make it, but uh, definitely want to. Kind of a cool idea to be able to in- invite people and hear some of the experiences that um, people have had there. Um, and uh, so I want to encourage you guys to, to take part in that. <clears throat> when you think of humble men and women in the Bible, who comes to mind? Who first comes to mind? In the Bible. Paul? Definitely Paul. Job? Job got really humble, didn't he? Yeah, that's right. Who else? Oh, that might be my, for my feet. Yeah, don't do that. All right, note to self. Don't kick that stuff down there. Um, yeah, Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar, there you go. You wouldn't really think of like humble men in the Bible. That you wouldn't really think of King Nebuchadnezzar, right? I mean, he wouldn't come to your mind first and foremost. And, and maybe he didn't live a life of humility. But as we're going to see tonight, maybe, maybe the most humble moment in the entire Bible happens with King Nebuchadnezzar. Love this story in, in uh, Daniel chapter 4. Um, and really a privilege to be able to teach it tonight, but very, very not worthy of talking about humility. Um, humility is something that, that I struggle with um, as a believer in Christ and as a, as a leader um, in this church and, and before you guys. That's something that I am so not proud of. To talk about, to say, I mean, it's one of the things I wish I could just would be gone. I wish I could be lazy over that or, or deal with anger over that. But to steal God's glory and not be a desire in my life, man, I wish that were not true. So, so as, a, as we're studying tonight, you can even pray for me, even tonight, even while we're doing this, that that wouldn't be a problem that, that the Holy Spirit would be powerful enough to, to speak through um, somebody who's not struggling with <laughs> humility, at least for this moment, right? Daniel chapter 4. Daniel chapter 4. We're going we're gonna, to uh, read it first. I'm just going to read right through it. Then I'm going to do a, uh, just a brief overview, explanation of, of what's going on, and then we'll get into some application. King Nebuchadnezzar, to all the peoples, nations, and languages that dwelled in all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. 
It has seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders that the Most High God has done for me. How great are His signs, how mighty His wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and His dominion endures from generation to generation. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house and prospering in my palace. I saw a dream that made me afraid. As I lay in bed, the fancies and the visions of my head alarmed me. So I made a decree that all the wise men of Babylon should be brought before me, that they may make known to me the interpretation of the dream. Then the magicians, the enchanters, the Chaldeans, and the astrologers came in, and I told them the dream, but they could not make known to me its interpretation. At last Daniel came in before me, he who was named Belshazzar, after the name of my God, and in whom is the spirit of holy gods. And I told him the dream, saying, O Belshazzar, chief of the magicians, because I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in you, and that no mystery is too difficult for you, tell me the visions of my dream that I saw in their interpretation. The visions of my head as I lay in bed were these. I saw and behold a tree in the midst of the earth, and its height was great. The tree grew and became strong, and its top reached the heaven, and it was visible to the end of the whole earth. Its leaves were beautiful, and its fruit abundant, and in it was food for all. The beasts of the field found shade under it, and the birds of the heavens lived in its branches, and all the flesh was fed from it. I saw in the visions of my head as I lay in bed, and behold, a watcher, a holy one, came down from heaven. He proclaimed aloud and said thus, Chop down the tree and lop off its branches. Strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the beasts flee from under it and the birds from its branches. But leave the stump of its roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze, amid the tender grass of the field. Let him be wet with dew of heaven. Let his portion be with the beasts in the grass of the earth. Let his mind be changed from a man's, and let a beast's mind be given to him. Let the sentence in the decree of the watchers, the decision by the word of the holy ones, to the end that the living may know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will and sets over it the lowest of men, the lowliest of men. This dream I, King Nebuchadnezzar, saw, and you, O Belshazzar, tell me the interpretation, because all the wise men of my kingdom are not able to make known to me the interpretation, but you are able, for the spirit of the holy gods is in you. Then Daniel, whose name was Belshazzar, was dismayed for a while, and his thoughts alarmed him. The king answered and said, Belshazzar, let not the dream or the interpretation alarm you. Belshazzar said, My lord, may the dream be for those who hate you and its interpretation for your enemies. The tree saw you, or the tree you saw, which grew and became strong, so that at its tops reached the heaven, it was visible to the end of the whole earth, whose leaves were beautiful and its fruit abundant, and in which was food for all, under which beasts of the field found shade, and whose branches the birds of the heavens lived. It is you, O king, who have grown and become strong. Your greatness has grown and reaches to the heaven, and your dominion to the ends of the earth. And because the king saw a watcher, a holy one, coming down from heaven and saying, Chop down the tree and destroy it, but leave the stump of its roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze in the tender grass of the field, and let him be wet with the dew of heaven, and let his portion be with the beasts of the field till seven period, periods of time pass over him. This is the interpretation, O king. It is a decree of the Most High, which has come upon my lord the king, that you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. You shall be made to eat grass like an ox, 
and ye shall be wet with the dew of heaven, and ye shall be wet with the dew of heaven, and seven periods of time shall pass over you, till you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. And as it was commanded to leave the stump of the roots of the tree, your kingdom shall be confirmed for you from the time that you now know the heaven rules. Therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed, that there may be perhaps a lengthening of your prosperity. 28. All this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. At the end of twelve months, he was walking on the root of the royal palace, roof of the royal palace of Babylon. And the king answered and said, Is not this great Babylon, which I have built in my mighty power as a royal residence for the glory of my majesty? While the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven. O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. The kingdom has departed from you. And you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field, and you shall be made to eat grass like an ox. And seven periods of time shall pass over you, until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. Immediately, the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from among men and ate grass like an ox, and his body wet with the dew of heaven till his hair grew long as eagles and eagles feathers, and his nails were like the bird's claws. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High, and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation, All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, What have you done? At the same time, my reason returned to me, and for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and splendor returned to me. My counselors and my Lord sought me, and I was established in my kingdom. And still more greatness was added to me. Now I... Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven, for all his works are right and his ways are just, and those who walk in pride he is able to humble. And Father, I just want to come to you again, Lord. God, just begging you that you would speak. God, these are not my ways. These are not my thoughts. God, this is you. May we hear you tonight, Lord. God, please speak to us in this, in this moment in the history of our time, of planet Earth, that's recorded for us on the pages of the Bible, this monumental time in history where you humbled man. May we, Lord, look tonight on somebody else's sweat. May we learn from somebody else's spilt blood, Lord. Speak to us tonight, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so as I mentioned, we're going to do a, a, just a, a, a brief overview now that we've read that. I'm going to go through it quickly. So picking up in, in, in uh, chapter 4 at the beginning, we actually need to go back to chapter 3 last week. And if you guys remember uh, last week's story, King Nebuchadnezzar uh, 
made a, a, a statue and wanted everybody to, to worship. It was his statue, and I want everybody to worship it, and made a rule that everybody has to worship it or, or they die. And, and so uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, uh, servants and friends, servants of God and friends of Daniel, they refused to do this. And so he said, okay, you're going to be tossed into the fire. They were thrown into the fire. And um, prior to being thrown in the fire, they said that they wouldn't bow. They didn't have to give an answer to him. Right? And so they were, they were thrown into the fire, and they will not burn nothing, not even singed. And so they come out, everything totally intact, every, totally fine, just complete miracle of God. King Nebuchadnezzar, remember, witnesses this. He sees this, and he's done a pretty incredible thing, right? It doesn't just happen every day that somebody would escape this fiery furnace. The other men that, that were thrown, just threw him in there were burned up. So what's his response? He said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. This is verse 28 of chapter 3. Who has sent his angel and delivered his servants who trusted in him. So he sees that they have a God, right? They've got a God. And their God, actually, these guys' God actually delivered them. So he's given some credit, some credence to, to your guys' God. He's, he's a pretty big God. Matter of fact, he makes this decree in verse 29 that says, anybody that... That uh, speaks uh, anybody of any language, nation that speaks anything against this God is going to be torn from limb to limb. Then he goes down here at the beginning of of chapter four and, and actually praises God. How great are His signs? How mighty His wonders? His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. His dominion endures from generation to generation. And then we hit verse four, <laughs> right? And it must be some time that it's passed because now we get back into Nebuchadnezzar's kind of old life, his ease, his comfort, his throne, everything's great. And again, he has a dream. And what does he do? He kind of goes back to his old ways. He calls the magicians, the enchanters, the Chaldeans, everybody else, but Daniel, as it appears, to come and interpret this dream, which he did the first time, if you remember, in the first dream. And once again, what happened? Same result. These guys couldn't couldn't interpret it. So in comes Daniel. And remember the first dream that he wanted everybody to interpret the dream or to, to actually speak the dream and to interpret, right? Well, now he actually trusts Daniel. There's some form of trust here because he doesn't even do this this time. He doesn't make Daniel tell him what the dream is. So he's looking to Daniel as someone with trust, obviously. He's raised him up in his kingdom because of what happened the first time. And, and he's elevated him up so, to a, a certain position. And he actually says that, I, I know that you've got gods behind you. You've got a God behind you. We see that in, in uh, what, verse 8. Um, actually, it's verse 9. O Belch is our chief of the magicians, because I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in you. So, so here he is, you know, giving credit, a little bit of credit here to, to Daniel, to Belshazzar's God. And says, I know that, I know that this God is for you. He's behind you. And so I know that this is going to be able to happen. At the end of uh, his explanation of the dream, uh, down in verse 18, it says, I know that you're going to be able to, that, that your spirit um, will be able to. So he, he explains the dream to him, what, what's going on, and he's primed and ready for the explanation, the interpretation of what's going on. So we see the dismay on Daniel, right? It's like, oh, no. This is, this is not good. I don't really want to tell him this, you know. But I've got to because he fears God, right? Daniel has a legitimate fear of God, like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, a fear of God that his ways are always best. 
And he's a God worth, worth following. So he tells him the dream, and it starts out, um, obviously because of his, you know, his reluctance. You know, I'm sure that Nebuchadnezzar thought, well, you know, well, he said, you know, don't, don't worry about telling me. Go, you know, go ahead and, and tell me. So he knew that it probably wasn't something that was going to be spectacular. However, we see that uh, as it starts out, he, he says, King Nebuchadnezzar, this tree that everything is under and its beauty and its majesty and its enormity, that's you. So you can imagine, oh, okay, this isn't so bad so far. I don't, I don't mind hearing that, right? Well, then it quickly gets into, in verse 23, this tree is going to be chopped down and it's going to be destroyed, but the stump is going to remain. And so he explains to him how this tree, you are going to be taken down. You are going to be made low until the seven periods of time passes over you. And guess what, king? This is going to happen. And these seven, seven periods of time are going to take place. And it's at that time, at the end of that, that you are going to know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and that the Most High gives the kingdom of men to whom he wills. It's not you. You're going to know this. And again, it restates it in, in, a, in a 20, 26 there, I guess. Your kingdom shall be confirmed for you from the time that you know that heaven rules. And you can see that Daniel probably doesn't hate the king, knows that he's probably a kind of a wicked guy, obviously, but in his encur- he wants to encourage him. because, like, come on, king. At the end of 27 there, break off your sins. You know, start practicing righteousness. Maybe this won't happen for a time. You know, kind of repent. Pay attention. God is huge. You're not. <laughs> so there we have this break. We don't really know what happens right then, what he says right then. It's not recorded for us. But here's what we do know. Verse 28, that, uh, that, that a, a year passes after this. So there's, there's quite a bit of time that's elapsed now. And Nebuchadnezzar now is walking on the rooftops, probably something he does every day, looking out over his kingdom to see what he has built. This is, this, is, this is the Babylonian kingdom. It's the biggest kingdom on the planet. And he is the ruler over it. And he looks out there and he says, Is not this great Babylon which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence for the glory of my majesty? You don't have to be a Bible scholar very long to know that's not going to end well right there. That's some bad thoughts. That's not good. And so we see that right then and there, the words didn't even get finished coming out of his mouth. And a voice from heaven, God says to him um, exactly what Daniel had told him was going to happen a year ago. Word for word. And so you can imagine in that moment, reflecting, hearing this voice from heaven, one second you are so high and lifted up, right? And so arrogant and so prideful and looking out here and your thoughts are all about you and what you have done and how you reign and rule and you will never be taken down. And then heavens open up and they talk to you. And he repeats back to them the dream from the year before. Word for word, what Daniel is saying to him And you can imagine him just starting to shake. Holy cow. This is, this is, 
This is Daniel and his God. You can kind of, you know, just the pieces getting put together. But then not too long, it says in verse 33, immediately the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from among men and ate grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven till its hair grew long as eagle's feathers, and his nails were like the bird's claws. So we can see that, um, that, that this dream came to fruition and actually happened. And then, and then we get into the, the restoration, verses 34 through 37. At the end of these days... Uh, these seven periods of time, however, there's some debate upon what that would be. Nobody really knows. But it, it's some days. It's some time. It's, it's, it's uh, substantial. At the end of these days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, just like Daniel told him that he would, and my reason returned to me. And I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion. And his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. And he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? You need to read that part like every morning when we get up, right? <laughs> his reason returned to him, but for the first time you actually really got it. He really got what was going on, that this God is a big God. This isn't just a God that can deliver those who trust in him, as he did with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And he isn't just a God, as in the first dream, that's a big God because he can reveal mysteries of man. Okay, so, so that's just kind of the brief overview of what happened. Well, if we get into verse 36, we actually see that his... his his uh, kingdom was returned to him. And he talks, he does say this. He says, to me and, to, and for the glory of my kingdom and my majesty and his splendor, don't let that confuse you as if he's being puffed up now. Because verse 37, after he's stating this, what God has done says this. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven. For all his works are right, his ways are just, and those who walk in pride he is able to humble. So he's just stating what God had done. <clears throat> okay, so, so what is God trying to say to us today here in this passage? What, what is he saying to us today? I think he's trying to say this. I might be squeezing this out, but, but see what you think. I think he's trying to say this to us. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will. I think that's what he's trying to say to us. God wants us to know that he is sovereign, that he is powerful, that he is in control, and everything does as he says. Even the mountains and the seas obey him. I heard a reputable pastor just recently who I trust very much, who I, I've wondered about this and want to get into the theology of this, but he's a professor of theology, and here's what he said. You try to kind of weaken God, you, we, try to weaken God by saying God allows this to happen. And it kind of gives God a soft side to him. And he said, that is wrong. God does everything. He does everything. 
There's people in the Bible who had a hard time with this. Habakkuk. Have you ever read about the prophet Habakkuk? He starts out by questioning God. Babylonia or Babylonia is or Babylon is 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 taking over them and crushing them and and ruling them and and Habakkuk cries out and he says, "Why God are you going to sit there idly? Why do you do this? Why don't you come to help us? How can you look at this evil? Why do you do this?" Just keeps going on and on and questions. Why will you not listen to my cry? Why do you look at the violence? Why do you remain silent? Why will you not save God? Why? God answers him. Apparently it wasn't good enough. A second time he complains against God and says, What are you doing, God? And God says, paraphrasing here, "You you, You can't even know what I'm doing. You won't get what I do. You don't think like I do. You see, I am raising up Babylon, the wicked and perverse Babylon, to judge and to rule and to destroy my people. And you see, I am God, and everything's under my control, and I do as I will, and it's my plan. And at the end of Habakkuk, he is standing, sitting, I don't know what his posture is, probably laying And he's going, if we've got no grain in the fields, if the fields are empty, if the stalls have got no animals, I don't don't care what happens, I will rejoice in God. I will give thanks to God. I will give praise to God. Romans 9, just trying to continue on to prove a point that God is sovereign in his control and he does everything that he wants to, everything that he wills. He says says this in Romans 9.17, And he's quoting Exodus 9.16. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all of the earth. That's Pharaoh's lot. Pharaoh gets used for the glory of God. Isaiah, I just got to read this. Isaiah 2.12-22. What's God trying to convey to us? What's God trying to say to us? 12, for the Lord of hosts has a day against all that is proud and lofty, against all that is lifted up, and it shall be brought low, against all the cedars of Lebanon, lofty and lifted up, and against all the oaks of Bashan, against all the lofty mountains, against all the uplifted hills, against every high tower, against every fortified wall, against all the ships of Tarshish, against all the beautiful craft. And the haughtiness of man shall be humbled, and the lofty pride of man shall be brought low, and the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. And the idols shall utterly pass away, and people shall never, or people shall enter the caves of rocks and the holes of the ground from before the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of his majesty when he rises to terrify the earth. In that day, mankind will cast away their idols of silver and their idols of gold which they have made for themselves to worship, to the moles and to the bats, to enter the caves of the rocks and the clefts of the cliffs and before, from before the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of his majesty when he rises to, ter- to terrify the earth. Stop regarding man in whose nostrils is breath, for what account is he? That's Isaiah 2. 
God, throughout the Old Testament, we see that He wants us to know that He is God, that He is so high and that we are so low. He wants us to get this separation. And when He's taking, when He's taking, uh, uh, Israel out of, out of Egypt, He, He had the ten plagues and He kept hardening Pharaoh's heart. Pharaoh didn't even have a chance. He hardened his heart, you see, after every plague. And I hardened his heart. God hardened his heart, and he wouldn't let the people go. Finally, they just start slaughtering the, the Egyptians, and God allowed Pharaoh to let the people go, right? And so he let them go, and you're just like, whoa, that's heavy on Egypt. That's heavy on Pharaoh. That, and, then they, and then they go. Then they're out in the wilderness, and they're, they're going, and then they're being led by a pillar of uh, a fire by night and a cloud by day. And, and God brings them back. As if this wasn't, he brought him back and displayed them in front of Pharaoh and hardened his heart again so that Pharaoh would go after them again. I'm like feeling sorry for him now. And he, and he goes after him and he kills him. And it says in Exodus 14, 18. Here's why. 14, 18. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. All throughout Ezekiel, you can read Ezekiel, the prophet Ezekiel. And he just continually says, and judges, and, and things are going to happen to the nation and to individual people even. And he always is saying, oh, then they will know that I am God. Then they will know that I am God. And he keeps doing these things, wiping him out, destroying him, and then they will know that I am God. And then they will know that I am God. It seems to be pretty big. It seems to be a pretty big deal that we know that he is God. And what does that mean? And what does that mean that he is God? Isaiah 55 tells us that God's ways are higher than our ways and his thoughts are higher than our thoughts. So far as the heavens are from the earth. Wouldn't it be pretty big if it was just like from as high as Mount Hood is from the valley below? I mean, that's a big jump. I get you, I get you mean it's pretty big, God. But he's like, as far as the heavens, which we have no end in sight of the heavens, are from the earth. That's how different you and me are, God says to us. We're way different in our thoughts, in our capacity. We're really, really different. And I want you to know that. I want you to know that I am God. Got all excited and lost my place. <clears throat> but you see, just knowing God is God isn't, isn't actually everything. It's not actually everything. Hang with me for a moment. Let's watch. Okay, so look in chapter 2. Nebuchadnezzar has a dream, right? And we, we, we kind of already talked about this. And what happens in that dream... Uh, uh, is really irrelevant to the story um, for what I'm talking about. But he, he, he uh, Belshazzar, Daniel, uh, shows him the dream, tells him the dream, and he's really impressed because he didn't tell Daniel the dream. And he's really impressed that Daniel knew the dream. Not so much what was in the content. Because he says, in verse uh, 47, says, The king answered to Daniel and said, Truly your God is a God of gods and Lord of kings. And a revealer of mysteries. So Daniel's God's the God of, he's the God of, of, of mysteries. I mean, he's one of the gods. 
But remember, Daniel's named after his God, he says, right? Belshazzar, that's his God. So, so that, that is what's happened after that encounter with God, that first encounter with God where, where he sees God working in a man. That's, that's his reaction. He's a, pretty, he's, a pretty, you know, he's a pretty big God. You know, this is a pretty big God you got. This is God reveals mysteries. And we go right into King Nebuchadnezzar erecting an image of gold, worshiping. Didn't stick with him very long. Didn't seem to be that impressive. Turn over to chapter 3. After the encounter with God again, through Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, he sees that this God is a pretty impressive God. This God delivered his servants, is what he says. His servants that trusted in him. So, so this God, you know, he's a good God to follow. If you tr- I mean, he, you know, he delivers you. He's a pretty good God. Matter of fact, I'm making a decree. Anybody mess with their God, I'm going to kill him. So he's pretty impressed with their God. His thoughts towards their gods, you know, I don't even know if he thinks of the same God or what. Maybe not. Because he thinks of a lot of gods. But he's going, okay, you guys, you boys, you got some pretty big gods. Matter of fact, he elevates, elevates everybody that it affects. He elevates uh, Daniel uh, in, uh, from the, uh, the vision, after he interpreted the vision. And he elevates Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Promoted them as well. So it's not like he's just going, yeah, God's nothing. He's looking at God, and he sees God, these encounters with God, and he's impressed. What's the difference? Back in chapter 4, we see that he starts to realize who God really is. He sees this dream, probably doesn't think a whole lot of it, and then he gets absolutely humbled, humbled, Beyond humility. And, and he couldn't have, I don't think he was comatose, even though it said he was, you know, he had, had the mind of a beast even. He, he, somehow he knew what happened because when he came out of this, he wasn't just, well, what happened to me? I go right back to what I was doing. He got it. Now, I don't know if he had some of his mind still there to understand what was going on a little bit or he sees himself. I don't know, but he gets up out of this. He looks to God and here's the difference. Listen to him because here's what he said the first time. Or the second time, rather, in the beginning of chapter 4, he said, How great are his signs, Nebuchadnezzar speaking to God. How mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and his dominion endures from generation to generation. We have a lot to say here, but we have a real significant difference. It says, For his dominion, now in, in uh, verse 34, For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. He said that before. Here's the new piece. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. He is so humbled that now he's starting to get this cosmic difference. I mean, it's just, you're here and I'm here. The other times he was sitting there going, man, you're a pretty good God. Look at me. You and me, we could hang. But now he realizes that's not true. I can't hang with this God. He, he goes so low to say, he doesn't even call us man. He calls us inhabitants. He just says, hey, we're inhabitants. How low is a nothing? He gets it. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. And he does according to his will. I don't know if there's any other gods out there, but among the host of heaven. So he's like, even if whatever else is even there, he does according to his will among the host of heaven. 
and among the inhabitants of the earth. There is no other rival God to this God, he said. There isn't another one. I know that now, and that's going to change me. That's what he's saying. This changes him, we see. We don't know how it completely finishes, but we see how it changes him. That even after his kingdom was built, and it kept growing and kept growing, and he says, but I praise and honor, extol the king of heaven, for all his works are right and his ways are just, and those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. Why is this important for us to get this chasmic separation, this giant separation between us and God? Why does this matter? It's the gospel. God holds all the power, all life. He holds the keys to life. Only him. And we have no access to heaven. We have no access to those keys. We have no access to real life in and of ourselves. We can do nothing. This is the gospel. But God, but God does. He can do anything. He can do everything. He is all authority, all power, and he happens to be all loving. It's the gospel. This is why we need to know this. This is why we need to get the separation that he is here and I am here because you'll never truly come to that worship of God. You'll never come to that place if God is big and so are you. You'll never be broken. Psalm 51 says he loves that broken. He'll never despise that broken heart and contrite spirit. That's what he wants. And you look at the men and the women of the Bible and they were broken. They were all broken before God. Broken. They understood that they needed him. And they had no route to him if he didn't do everything. We're nothing. We have to understand that. We're nothing. Now that's to be saved, right? And so once I'm saved, now I need to be something. Right? Wrong. You're still nothing. You're clothed in righteousness because of him. You're nothing in and of yourself. So, so there isn't this life that i got to go out and be a something now. i got to prove myself that, that God chose me and that was a good idea of God. It's still, God wants me to have this giant separation. Why does he still want me to be humble? Why does he still want me to, to be here? 1 John 1, 5 through 7 <coughs> explains to us that we are to walk in the light as he is in the light. And, and those verses there, you guys, tell us that we can't even have right relationship with God or with man until we walk in the light. What's walk in the light? I'm transparent. My life is transparent before everyone. Before you, before God. Why? Why is that? It's, this, it's a positional statement, First John is, right there. It's, he's given you, this is, it's not just this rule, you got to do this, and you gotta, oh, I need you to repent and, and go and drink some water. It's, it's this position. I need you to get your position right. When you're humiliated before man, when you're humbled and low before man, I am lifted up. When you see me as, as you need me and you're still nothing, and even as a follower of Christ, I'm here and you're here, everything works now. Your relationship with your brothers and sisters work because you love them. You extend grace to them because you're not looking down on them. Other people that don't know me, that works because you love them, because you didn't deserve me. Your relationship with you and me, it really works too. Because you're low and you look up at me 
and you say, I still need you. So this isn't just that we get into heaven, that we have this giant separation. It, it is paramount that it remains like this. Paramount that it remains that way for the rest of our life. Ask the church of Ephesus if it's a good idea to do all the right things for God. Look in Revelation 2 and see how it goes for them. They're doing all the right things for God. they got a real good churchy atmosphere, doing a lot of things, proclaiming Christ. They probably have phenomenal doctrine because they're, they're, it talks about they're, they're um, casting out false prophets, protecting Jesus' name, but they've got no love of God. They do not worship God. You can't love people either. They have no love of God, no love of people. It's a huge problem. He says, if you don't repent of this church of Ephesus, I'm going to wipe you out. You'll be done. You'll be gone. And remember how in Acts 19, how it was awesome. The church blew up. That church of Ephesus, that's that church they're talking about. They were going through in Acts and how it blew up and added to those number of days. Forty years later, Revelation 2, 40 years later, they totally forgot God. Doing a lot of good ministry. God wants us to know that he is God. He wants us to worship him from beginning to end. God desires our worship. I really don't want this to happen to me. How about you? I really don't want to be hit like this by God. I mean, if I'm really honest, I don't want this kind of an experience with God. I know it would be good for me, but I really don't want it. So what can I do about it? Is there anything I can do about it? How can I battle my pride? How can I rightly think about God and think about me? Is there anything I can do? Turn back with me, if you will. At least you have to turn back in my Bible. <clears throat> Chapter 4, um, looking at, uh, starting at verse 28. We're just going to go over some, some things of application here. What I can do. <clears throat> and then we'll be done. And we've got uh, three things to look at. Okay? So here's number one. All this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar, verse 28. <clears throat> at the end of 12 months, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. <clears throat> so it had been a long time since he had any kind of a fear of any kind of a God, whatever God he was thinking about. He had somewhat of a fear and a reverence, somewhat of a respect. Don't know really exactly his thoughts towards the God of Daniel after Daniel interpreted the dream. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He did have some kind of a, of a, of a thought about God and, and elevated this, this God. And actually, here in, in the start of, uh, of verse 4, it looks like everything's going really well as he's proclaiming his kingdom and his dominion. But you guys, time goes by in our life, does it not? You can probably think about the experiences of your life with God. Man, I hope you can. I hope you guys have encounters with God that you can speak of and you can scream his name to people. That's your testimony. Unfortunately, they don't happen every day. These earth-shattering, fall-on-my-face kind of experiences. I've had them. Love them. Not really necessarily in them, but the result of them. And yeah, I love I love that place. I love that place. But you guys, it's really easy for us, is it not, to forget, to forget about that and be removed from that and start going and doing our own thing. Let's just look to a weekly life. Sunday, we're here. We hear the word. We praise God. 
Man, in that moment, you're praising God. You're agreeing with everybody else. Yeah, God, you are unbelievable. And in that moment, you're not thinking about anything else, hopefully. Not thinking about anything else. Not about my job troubles. Not even about my marriage troubles. Not even about, oh, how good I'm doing uh, here or there or anything else. How good I look. How good I even sound singing. I'm worshiping God. I'm right there in that moment, right? And then Monday comes. And then Tuesday comes. So on and so forth. Don't let time go by in your life without looking to God in praise. In praise. You guys, sometimes we get so busy serving. Do you remember the story of Mary and Martha in Luke 10? You guys remember that? Jesus comes to Mary's house. Am I going to get the names right? Mary, to, she comes to Mary's. Is it anyway? No, Mar, Martha. It comes to their house, right? Comes to their house. And I uh, probably should have had it, right? Comes to their house. And um, Mary immediately welcomes Jesus and, and gets to cook and doing all the things. No, no, Martha. Martha. Okay, Martha does that. <clears throat> I got Jesus, right? It was Jesus who came. So, uh, <clears throat> um, maybe you should come up and help me, Lynette. So, uh, we'll get that straight. So, so Martha's up cooking. She's doing the dishes. She's, she's preparing. She's doing all the things that you're supposed to do for God, for company. I mean, this is God after all. This is Jesus. And she's, you know, she's doing all this stuff and she's just working, slaving away. I'm, I'm serving God. I'm serving God. And what's Mary doing? She's sitting at her feet. She's doing nothing. What's she doing? Why is she, why is she doing nothing? God, and she even goes to Jesus. She's like, hey, Jesus, look at Mary. Hello, you see what she's doing? Look at me. Can you tell her to get up off her butt and help me? And what's his response? What's his response? What? She's chosen the good thing. The one good thing, he says. She's chosen the one good thing. She's got the good portion. What's the one good thing? She's sitting at the feet of Jesus, taking in every moment that he will give her. Worshiping him, listening to him. Can that not be us? Can Martha not be us? Don't we actually want churches filled with Marthas? Isn't that what we really want, if we're honest? I mean, Peg over here, you know, I mean, she's an awesome, awesome worshiper of God, and she's always on her face before God. And she, but, but this gal over here, you know, Connie, she, man, she's a go-getter. And she, she does everything. I want Connie. Well, Jesus wants pay. Now, now, hear me out. Does Jesus want us to serve? Absolutely, right? Yes. Yes, he does. What's more important? Worship. Worship. Worship is more important than service. In Psalm 19, David continually speaks about needing God, needing his word. And his word is food. I'm talking to my daughters the other day and trying to explain that to them about our input in our life. Our input in our life has to be more Jesus than anything else. <clears throat> you, it's okay to watch TV. It's not about Jesus. We've got Jesus TV, whatever. We, got, we just got videos. But uh, it's G, everything's a Jesus video, Jesus song, or it's not. <laughs> and... Um, like you guys need a lot of input of Jesus. Matthew chapter 6 tells us that our eyes are the light to our body. What goes in them is going to come out. 
If it's darkness, it's darkness that's going to come out. Why are we so surprised when our input has little to do with Christ? Maybe once a week we show up, maybe even twice a week, but the reality of my week, what's going on, is the world and the things of the world and the lusts of the world, and we wonder why what comes out of me looks like the world. Man, I can't get over that. The reason why is because our input is the world. So you see Nebuchadnezzar, a year had gone by, a lot of time had gone by, since he just heard this dream, and even more time since he was kind of praising who God was. Okay, secondly, look at verse 30. And the king answered and said, Is not this great Babylon which I have built by my mighty power? So he obviously is taking credit, and he learned that the hard way, for what God does, and only God does. <clears throat> do you do this? I, I know that I do. Or how about, do you just simply want God's glory? Just a little bit. Just a little bit. I mean, I do want God to be really high in people's minds. But if I could just come up here a little bit too, that'd be really cool, God. We would never say that, would we? We would never really say that. But do we think that? Do we do that? Do you ever fish for a compliment? Do you ever let other people know about how much I'm serving others? Do you ever throw out Bible verses to sound kind of like, oh, you know quite a bit about the Bible. Holy cow. You ever done something and you're like, oh, I just, I don't want to say what I've done, but I really hope people find out. I really hope they know it was me. That'd be cool. Or simple things like, does it matter to you what you wear, what you drive, what people think of you? Remember what God said at the end of chapter 2 of Isaiah? Quit fearing man. Quit worrying about what man thinks of you. He's got breath in his nostrils, and God can change that in a heartbeat. So who's... Sorry, I started going into verse 3, or into the the illustration 3. They're very similar. Um, But the the second one was taking credit for what is God's. And I went down to the second set of illustrations there in 3. But we do that, don't we? Don't we, don't we try to take credit for what is God's? What only God has done and what his ability has done. So going back up to the right illustrations here. You guys, we're born into America. We've been born here, raised here. How fortunate is that? We got the freedom to pursue Christ. This isn't even a challenged thing at all right now. We can see that, that God says that he places people Are you proud of your job and what you've done at your job? What you've gotten yourself to? Positions in ministry? The abilities that God has given you? How about even your faith? Where your faith is at? Doesn't the Bible tell us that He grows our faith? He gave us our faith and He continues giving us and growing our faith. We live by the grace of God. Everything's grace. Ezekiel 18 Chapter 18 is not a fun chapter to read. It tells us that we are worthy of death. Sin makes us worthy of death instantaneously, that he can wipe out everybody because he's God, because he's holy, and we're not. And here's the judgment. You all die. But God, in his grace, has allowed us to live, even people that don't know him. I mean, every day is grace, you guys. So we taking credit for what is God's, his position, where he's placed us, the things that I have in my life. 1 Corinthians 4, 7 says, what do you have 
that you did not receive? What do you have that you did not receive? You've been given everything. Even the difficult things are a gift from God. Everything God does. Last point, number three. I already kind of spoiled it, but we'll get to it anyway. Also in verse 30, very similar, but a little bit of difference, subtle difference. Is not this great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence for the glory of my majesty. So he's talking about, here's what I've done. Here's what I've accomplished. And you know what? It's for me. It's so that everybody looks at me in a new light, in a different light. It's so that everybody worships me. And as I already read a bunch of these, we think, I would never do that. That's not me, God. you, You don't even compare me with Nebuchadnezzar. I don't want to go there. I don't want people to look at me. I don't want this comparison. I don't want what should be your glory given to me. I don't want that. And as we've already gone through this, this list, that's not true of me. Sometimes I want his glory. Look what he does when people want his glory. How do I get there? I don't know. As I prayed, we want to learn over somebody else's blood. We want to look at the story of Nebuchadnezzar and probably other people in your life, other people in the Bible, and see that it goes bad. Look at Saul. Man, his position, he really got stoked about his position, didn't he? Because he entered it well. Oh, I don't know if I can do that. I don't know. I'm just a little guy. I don't know. Then it was like, I am it. Our concern as Christians, you guys, is that people would see God high and lifted up and us very low. That should be a concern of ours, that people see us low. A concern, not just it's okay, but we should want people to see us low. Why? The gospel. The gospel, it makes everything work. If you're high and he's high and it doesn't work, nothing works. You can, you know, you're not low and you kind of, you, you need God. You can make your, God, you're, you're good and God can like you. And you, For us to rightly represent the story of redemption to mankind we should be really concerned that God is elevated and we are made to be small and low. It should be us. That's who we should be as Christians. So as the title asks, how big is your God? And then now at the end, and how big are you? How big is God in your mind? And how big are you? Going through a book, Knowledge of the Holy, I highly recommend it, A.W. Tozer. And he just starts spelling some things out. He's a, he's a, he's a way intelligent man. <laughs> and he says, we can't even know God. You, we don't know who God is. We can't even imagine God. We can't imagine the rest of who he is. It just, man, it just, you see, he talks about the examples of, of John trying to describe heaven. Ezekiel and his encounter with God. In Ezekiel 1, 2, and 3. And it, it, it's, it's like this, and it's, it's kind of like that. And you're, you're just looking at things that you don't know what they are, but you're trying to compare them with the language that you already know. And you go, something like this, and it looks like that, and I don't know. This is crazy, but it's cool, and it's really big. Nebuchadnezzar had three encounters with God that we see here in Daniel so far. And the first two encounters kind of impressed him a little bit with his last encounter where he ate the grass. He got it. It really humbled him. 
Is God impressive to you? Is he just impressive to you? The things that he does for you? How he might grant you some things and give you some things and help you on the way? Or like Nebuchadnezzar, like Paul, like Moses, like John, like all the Old Testament prophets, do you tremble at his name? I just pray for me that God would never get small, right? That God would just grow in my mind as I go. That I would get smaller as I go. You guys, why don't we right now, you just pray that for you. Just silently, right where you're at right now, we're done. Um, you just pray that for you, that that would be true. Okay? And then, and then I'll close. We'll just take a couple, a few moments here and just pray that. Father, we even pray to you right now with just all humility. God, thank you for showing us, Lord, just a little bit of who you are. God, the key to life, the key to the Christian life, the key to coming to real life, Lord. And it's an absolute must, God, is an elevated view of you and a view of us that's in total despair and in need of you. God, help us to think rightly about who you are. Help us to think rightly about who we are. Lord, even as saved Christians, we elevate ourselves. We decrease you and we do it willingly, Lord. God, please forgive us. God, I confess, I never want to go through a story like this. I never want to, Lord, but do it to me a thousand times if I would leave you, if I would not look at you rightly, God. I want to see you. God, I just beg you, just let me see you. Let us see you for who you are. And there probably will have to come some humbling moments in life, God. God, when we say bring them, because what's more important is not how we look in front of each other. What's more important is how we look to you and in front of you and how we think of you and how we view ourselves, Lord. God, move in us. God, we are not satisfied with our clouded, shady view of you. God, we want to know you. We want to see you. Love your people. Grant us that, God. Grant us that, Lord. Father, we love you. And we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. Stuart, are you coming up or...